You're listening to Conversations from Washington Post Live's 2022 Global Women's Summit, featuring leaders and trailblazers from around the world. Welcome. Oh, that's a great introduction. I'm Hillary Clinton, and I cannot tell you <laughs> how absolutely delighted I am to be interviewing uh, these two remarkable women, and we're going to dive right into it because I could literally talk to them for hours, but we don't have that much time. I think you got a bit of uh, a taste from the videos as to what uh, we have in front of us um, two remarkable women, veteran Russian journalist Galina Timchenko and activist investigator Maria Pevchik. Uh, and you also saw an excerpt from the remarkable documentary about Alexei Navalny. Uh, Maria works with the anti-corruption foundation that uh, Navalny started. And let me turn first to you, Maria. Um, I want to talk about your work um, at the Anti-Corruption Foundation and the linkage that you see between your efforts to expose corruption and the authoritarian, totalitarian, dictatorial uh, reign of Vladimir Putin. But first, let's, let's get an update about uh, Alexei Navalny. He's now been uh, in prison for the last year and a half. He was just, as I understand, sentenced to another 14 days in solitary confinement. Um, I personally believe he's in constant danger because he's imprisoned by the same people who tried, uh, thankfully, unsuccessfully to murder him. Um, so when was the last time you heard from him? How is he doing? What can you tell us about uh, what's happening with him? Of course, of course. I wish I had a little bit more of a cheerful news to share about Navalny. Uh, but the situation, frankly, isn't good. Um, so he has been in prison for um, almost two years now. In the last two months, more than two months, he has spent in a solitary confinement. So that's a punishment mechanism for those prisoners, for those inmates who don't behave according to the prison rules. And um, he's been given this rolling 14-day sentences in the solitary confinement for things like not having his shirt uh, buttoned up or not introducing himself properly, or not addressing a prison guard in an appropriate manner, and things like that. Um, he's, at this very second, he's in a very small room, six by 11 feet big. Um, it's just concrete walls and a tiny little window very close to the ceiling. Um, there is a bed in this room that at 6 a.m. every day is being chained up to the wall, so he cannot lay down, he cannot sit in it. There is a stool without a back, there is a small table, and the only two possessions he's allowed there are a book and a mug. So that's literally everything he has in his life at the, as of now. For 35 minutes a day, he's allowed to use pen and paper, and these are the most precious 35 minutes because this is when he writes letters to his family, to his friends, to he responds to some letters that he might be getting in prison. And um, for the past eight or nine weeks, like we've had zero communication with him. Well, you know, he um, authored a very important op-ed for the Washington Post right. uh, that appeared on September 30th. Uh, and I, for one, thought it was uh, extremely uh, impactful because he talked about uh, Russia after Putin. And I 
I personally, after having watched the documentary and been so moved by um, his journey, was happy to read him throwing it into the future. Like, you know, we have to think about the future. We can't give in. We can't give up, even though he's in that six by 11 foot room. You worked on investigations for the Anti-Corruption Foundation now for a number of years, and you have exposed, as we briefly saw, all kinds of corruption that is directly traceable to Putin. Tell us the role that you see corruption playing in keeping Putin in power. Because sometimes people try to divide that. They say, well, there's corruption, it's terrible, and we should do something about it. Then there's authoritarianism and all. You know they're linked. So describe that to um, our audience. They aren't only linked. I am personally, I'm, I'm convinced that corruption is the root cause of everything that has gone wrong with Russia. And without corruption, without this carefully built corrupt monster that Putin built over the years. He started very early on and he had 20 years to come up with a pretty sophisticated you know, network of um, bribes, money, compromise, uh, and things like that. And I am pretty sure that without corruption, well, I mean, he won't be president at this point. There will be no war. They, there won't be any political murders. They can, Russia will be very, very different without it because with, corruption is such an important mechanism for Putin to uh, sustain and remain in power. Right now, he's sending those corrupt generals to be in charge of this war, um, the war that um, wouldn't be possible, as I said, I think, if there were institutions working, if, mm -hmm. if, the, if a president, if the head of state was accountable to the parliament or the government or to, the, to, or to his people. But none of that is there because over the years, very carefully and very deliberately, Vladimir Putin has been destroying our democratic institutions and corrupting the system. So it works only in his favor. Well, Galina, as a, a journalist, you have been sounding the alarm about uh, Putin and what he was doing to Russia for many years. And I think it's especially important to point out, as the video did, uh, that you were fired from your job in 2014 yep. because you were one of the very few people, and I include not just people in Russia, but literally around the world, who understood the significance of Russia's invasion of Crimea. And I think, you know, your work since then um, has been incredibly brave, but that moment, describe to us how you knew that this invasion, what happened in 2014, was critically important, and then you had to go outside of Russia to, yep. be, to continue reporting on what was happening. Uh, you know, um, in 2014, uh, when this so-called Crimea annexation or joining of Crimea, according to, to Kremlin, uh, started, uh, we realized that there is not first uh, attack to the freedom of uh, speech, to the freedom of press, and we uh, we continued publishing all the articles and reporting from Crimea and from Ukraine. And one day, the owner of uh, our um, media called me and said, I have to fire you under the direct um, order of Kremlin because uh, you are number one. 
uh, you are the most popular. It's almost TV, and Kremlin do not want uh, to have media out of their control. So the, from this second, you are not editor-in-chief anymore. Get up. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, then we realized that this Crimea question divided country, that what Putin did, he just cracked the country and the nation in the question of Crimea. It was some kind of temptation to the nation. And nation, unfortunately, agreed. Mm-hmm. So we decided, personally, I decided that I am too old and too tired to fight every day with FSB, police, and so on. So we decided to go to Latvia, it's uh, the neighbor country, and it's in European Union, and start from the scratch. So uh, it was eight years of fighting, and I used to say that our war started not half a year ago, not eight months ago, but more than eight years ago, and we are fighting too. And and the organization that you started, Medusa, has continued to report on what's gone on in Russia, and then because of the invasion of Ukraine at the end of February, you have been reporting about what's happening. And I think it's really significant that you have a lot of attention from readers and viewers inside Russia. Talk a little bit about how many people you're reaching. Uh, You know, uh, maybe it sounds strange, but we solved the problem of reaching uh, audience inside Russia. Because uh, uh, after a week, after the war started, we were blocked in Russia, totally twice, twice, <laughs> under the order of General Prosecutor Office and a Russian regulator. They blocked us twice, but still, we, from the very beginning, we decided that we are multi-platform media and we are broadcasting from every platform we could reach our audience. So we upgraded our uh, mobile application and now we have more than a million, million and a half, actually, uh, downloads of our application and we have built-in mechanism of avoiding blocking. So we could freely broadcast inside Russia and on every platform from messenger to new email newsletters, from podcasting to YouTube, uh, it's not blocked in Russia still. So we are broadcasting and now we could reach uh, in, in this October uh, after mobilization was declared, we had uh, pre-war numbers more than 15 million uh, users per month. Uh, read Medusa even on desktop and additionally on every platform. So uh, more or less we succeed, but uh, we realize as eight years ago that it's just a start of attack. It's not finish, you know, uh, and we, uh, we realize that they will continue the attack on the free press. Mm-hmm. And, and Maria, a lot of the work that you've done with the Anti-Corruption Foundation, you post on YouTube. And YouTube is still available inside Russia. And you also get tens of millions of views. So talk a little bit about how you've been able to continue to break through the, the wall that uh, Russia's tried to construct to keep both of you from reaching uh, Russian uh, citizens. Um, well, there is YouTube and it's still standing. So the trick with YouTube is that you cannot block just one video in it. Um, if you... Um, if you want a video, 
out, like, I don't know, an, our investigation about Putin's palace or about Putin's yacht. If Putin wants it's gone, it means that he needs to cancel the whole thing. So the entire YouTube will be down. And um, YouTube, weirdly, have a very, very good penetration in Russia. And loads of families, loads of households are using it for non-political reasons. They're using it to show cartoons to their kids. They're, you know, on repeats during breakfast. You know, have your iPad, have a look. Um, let's talk in an hour. So loads of people are using it for just, you know, domestic stuff, from, from like cooking show to entertainment recipes. show, for e everything, recipes, correct. Like, I mean, Russian TV is pretty bad. So you're kind of, you're looking for an alternative, right? And, and YouTube is a great alternative travel shows, cooking shows, anything you think of. Um, and uh, we're talking about approximately 80 million users that YouTube has. So um, Putin and the Kremlin, they have a dilemma. What do they want more, that Putin Palace video gone, or 80 million upset users? Um, predominantly women, predominantly, you know, like the demographics is bad as well. The demographics are the very same people who support Putin. You don't want to upset them. So we've been using and utilizing this dilemma a lot. And uh, we've been publishing our investigations um, online. We don't just, you know, read them out. No, no, no. We try to make them fun. We try to make them watchable. We try to, in every script of every investigation, and we published over 170 of them at this point, um, I love them. I mean, they, they, have, they have music, yeah, yeah. They, they have villains, they have yeah, you know, all kinds of activity. And sometimes, you know, when he was not in prison, Navalny would pop up and say, can you believe this? You know, I mean, they, they really are attention grabbing. And I think that's important. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. So, Galena, you, you told us something uh, in preparation for today that the Russian journalists inside Ukraine covering the war are all women. Yep. Because Russian men yep. are banned from yep. going into Ukraine. How has that shaped the coverage uh, that you've been seeing? You know, uh, at first it um, put me in a great responsibility for their lives and safety and security. And for sure, uh, Russian male journalists are prohibited to enter Ukraine in any case. So we had three, uh, uh, four <laughs> women journalists. Uh, they reported from the war zone, from besieged cities, from Kiev, under bomb attack. So, and uh, one, of, one of them, she left the besieged city of Chernigov in the last group of civilians, and then city was closed. So we uh, sent her for rehab, and after three days, Bucha happened, and she returned, and she investigated this uh, rape, uh, rapes and this torture that uh, women of Bucha survived or not survived, unfortunately. And it was very scary. This war we could see through women's eyes. Yeah. And in total, it's our side to this war. It's a women's face of this war. It seems to me it's for the first, first time in the modern history we could see war through women's eyes. And it's our women and Ukrainian bravest journalists who are facing death, but continue to report. Oh, wow.
you know, Maria, um, you've said that if today's levels of sanctions had been imposed when Russia invaded and illegally annexed Crimea, uh, that you're not sure that this current war would have happened. Can you explain what you mean by that? Because you're a Putin watcher. You're a, you've studied him. You know, this panel, I think, was originally called, you know, two women against Putin. It really should be three women against Putin. <laughs> and so, um, you, you, but you know a lot about uh, uh, him insofar as it's knowable. And, and so what do you mean by that about Crimea? Um, I think that Putin's decision to invade Ukraine now in February consisted of a number of assumptions. That's actually two, three. Um, some of them were that Ukrainians will be greeting Russian army with flowers and cakes and pierogies and I don't know and, and giving them hugs in every city. That was clearly a lie provided to Putin by generals, I don't know, special agents or whoever has taken money from Putin to actually, you know, pay for this and organize this and didn't do this in the end. Um, obviously, there was a very wrong assumption about the strength and capability of the Russian army. Again, corruption in this specific case, thank God. Um, and the third thing, Putin thought that he will get away with it. Um, he, and that is not the most unreasonable assumption if you think about it. After Crimea was annexed, I mean, look, like they sanctioned 50 mates of Putin who have billions of dollars, and, and they moved billions of dollars to a different jurisdiction, somewhere to, I don't know, Arab Emirates or just to Russia sometimes. And, and actually, it wasn't that bad. Um, then after uh, Putin got away with shooting down MH17 Boeing and 333 um, Dutchmen and Malaysian um, citizens being killed, over um, Ukrainian sky by a Russian missile, and that has been proved, and that's and, and, and it's the, court, the, the court has the court, the Hague court has solved this case. Um, Putin got away with um, this quasi war in the Eastern Ukrainian Donbas. Again, talks, deep concerns. We all have heard it so many times, but in the end, if you analyze it, the reputational loss, the economical loss of sanctions up until this point weren't significant. You could almost neglect them. Um, so these sanctions that happened, that were imposed after, after the invasion of Ukraine, okay, now we're talking, you know, that this is something that actually um, is a big problem for Putin and Putin's inner circle and the economy and everything and um, the closed borders are the problem, the brand and such leaving is the problem. All of that adds up to actually um, a good set of sanctions, which sadly came too late. And that's, we cannot really fix that. I, I'm, I'm not trying to tell people off or just complain or anything like that. All I'm trying to say is that we just need to acknowledge that the world has been late with that and we shouldn't be late again. You know, that's never too late. Sanctions imposed today are better than sanctions imposed tomorrow. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and now that the wave of those sanctions is kind of thinning a little bit, they are not as robust, they are not as often, and they don't feel imminent anymore. I'm urging every um, government, every institution responsible for that to not let this go and continue, continue doing that and continue applying pressure on Putin's regime. Well, because I think we've learned some very difficult lessons um, as to how far he will go left unchecked, not held accountable, um, with acting with impunity. Um, so let's sort of fast forward a minute um, 
because I mentioned Alexei Navalny's uh, article about a post-Putin Russia. He advocates a, uh, uh, a parliamentary system, what he calls a parliamentary republic. Galena, what do you see post-Putin? Assuming we keep the pressure on and don't give in um, too quickly, and just as we were walking out here, we saw a news yeah. alert that... Uh, Russian missiles had crossed into Poland and two Polish citizens were uh, killed. Poland is a NATO country. The Polish National Security Council is meeting as we speak. Um, and, and, you know, this. my friends in the Baltics have been saying this yeah. for years. You're now living in Latvia. Maria's yeah. living in Lithuania. They've always been warning about what Putin is capable of doing. So how do you see this uh, in the future? Uh, you know, maybe maybe I could sound a little bit sad, but I do believe that Russia has to learn this lesson from the scratch. There will be acceptance and atonement mm. first, and only after that we could build the real beautiful Russia of the future. Mm -hmm. First, learning lessons and atonement. We have to repair connections. We have to repair trust, if it's possible. Mm -hmm. We have to prove to the world that Russia is worth fighting for her future. So it's all about that. Yeah. Well, Maria, I'm going to give you the last uh, word, because I, I very much um, agree with your connection of corruption and what we're now seeing coming out of Putin. Um, when, when you think about counteracting Putin, you talked about uh, sanctions. What more should the international community, and particularly the United States and NATO, uh, try to do to counteract uh, not just what he's doing now, but to prevent him, as Galina was saying, from doing uh, anything further? It's a very, very complex question, and essentially the answer is known to anybody just like on their own very level. You guys know, journalists, activists, politicians, um, government officials, what can be done within your scope of power. Do we need more sanctions? Absolutely. You know what we need more than that? We need those sanctions actually being enforced. We need those people who help. Um, corrupt government officials from Russia avoid and evade the sanctions. We need those guys to be, to be uh, caught as well. We need, um, for example, British government, government officials to be catching the lawyers and enablers and all the other you know, agents, people who help to run this corrupt system, set up, setting up those blind trust funds um, or um, making this, you know, blind deals when the property is owned by someone you don't really know who that is. The rest. Like, for example, buying a floor in the Trump Tower. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Good example. That shouldn't be tolerated. And that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be, you shouldn't be turning your head away from it. Uh, Russian, Russian corruption stopped being Russian problem. It's, we've been saying it for years. And I could see why sometimes there was this approach that, let's just leave them alone. You know, you, they're doing so well economically. Let's, let's, let's just, you know, not look there. 
uh, and let Vladimir Putin be. I remind you, the World Cup in Russia, the Football World Cup, happened like, what, four years after Crimea yep. was annexed? It was a great holiday. I mean, everybody Hotly came. Blind. Yeah. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that there are, very, there are a lot of ways to do it. Or you can sometimes, I don't know, there are activists in the room. Sometimes your best decision is to actually go and stay, um, go stand in the middle of your city with a poster um, saying something very important to you. Uh, sometimes it's, I don't know, spreading, sharing this information if you have access to Russian readers, Russian audience. You know, sometimes it's just about not being lazy to repost something and write a little message. You know, do watch that. Do watch this film. Do watch a documentary. The so ambassadors. All of us have uh, have their own ways of contributing to it. My way is investigations. I cannot do. I am, I'm, I'm not qualified to do anything like that. I just investigate corruption. Galena's way is brilliant journalism, and um, there are so many other women and men, of course, uh, who um, who found their way against all the odds, against all of the pressure and risks, and they still continuing to fight Putin, and I admire all of them. And I admire both of our two guests so much, Maria and Kalina. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can find more conversations from our Global Women's Summit by searching Washington Post Live wherever you listen. Visit WashingtonPostLive.com to register for upcoming programs.